Sometimes when I am reading scripture passages, strange thoughts come into my mind. I don't know if that happens to you or not, but you think of all kinds of things and I make weird connections. I have sometimes described my brain like an air traffic controller. There's all these different things and most of the time I can control what's coming in and I know it's like, okay, that plane's going to land here. And then every once in a while, like a flock of geese flies and it's like, well, what's that? That happens sometimes in the middle of sermons. Sometimes you may notice it, sometimes you don't, where all of a sudden I'm talking about something else. You think, what was that? Oh, that was one of those flock of geese kind of flying in on the radar, and I had to pay attention to it. But one of the strange thoughts that came to my mind as I was reading our scripture for today was thinking about the game Dungeons and Dragons. You're familiar with the game Dungeons and Dragons is this role-playing game where there's a dungeon master, someone who crafts the narrative and tells the story, and the players then enter into this fantasy world where there may be a druid or an elf or they're a wizard, and, and they go and they battle dragons and orcs and trolls, and they seek treasure, and they try and work these things out. And it's this complicated story, and when you're playing, if you're playing, it's called a role-playing game because you enter into this story, and the idea is you become this character. I was thinking about Dungeons & Dragons for two reasons in relation to this text. One is, as we're finishing up this series today on the book of Ephesians, when I started this series, I offered the metaphor, the picture of Ephesians as a drama, borrowing from the work of Tim Gombas and others who talk about Ephesians is this drama. It's a story that we're designed to live out of or live into, that it's this cosmic drama of how God is remaking the world, that he's making all things new through Jesus Christ, the resurrected and risen and exalted king, that he's brought forgiveness and redemption, that he's raised us from dead in our transgressions and sin and into new life, that he's made peace between the peoples, that he's fashioning us into a holy people and dearly loved people. And there's this grand story going on, and we're invited to live in that story, to recognize that this is not something we're to sit by, but we're to participate in this drama. And so like in Dungeons and Dragons, we're asked to enter in the story. The difference being that Dungeons and Dragons, it's all imaginary. There are no trolls. There are no orcs. You aren't truly a wizard or a knight. But in the story of the Bible, we're asked to reckon this is true. All that we read here is true. All these things are happening. Not only the things we see, but the things we can't see. And we're invited to participate in this story that we have a role to play. We might read the Bible sometimes and think it's this grand cosmic drama of God and, and the battle against the forces of evil and redemption and bringing people. But what the book of Ephesians is inviting us to do is to recognize you've got a part to play. That each and every one of us has a role to play in God's story of redemption. That we're participating in God's work of redeeming the world. If we go back to the book of Genesis where God created people and placed them in the garden and He asked them to rule and reign over the earth. And the rest of the Bible is the story of how, God how people chose their own way rather than God's way. And then it's God working through people to redeem and to reclaim that world. Then through Jesus, all things kind of come together in Him. And so all who are in Him are participating in this work to recognize that the world isn't fully redeemed, that Jesus has done the work, but we're participating in this redemption and reclaiming. 
The other reason I thought about Dungeons and Dragons is you read this story, it sounds kind of like this fantastical thing. We're just talking about armor and these battles against principalities and powers that may feel like fighting dragons. And for those of you who've been around church for a while, you think of this idea of spiritual warfare, which isn't actually a term that's ever used here, but we get this idea of what it is. But what I want to suggest to you is that it's maybe not as fantastical and otherworldly as we believe. That what Paul is getting at here isn't these crazy things. It's not dealing with the demon who made your coffee maker not work this morning. Or all these other things that we sometimes think about. But that what Paul is getting at is something deeper. In fact, what Paul is getting at here in this final passage is what he's been talking about the entire letter to the Ephesians. Now, if you've heard me preach for a while, you know how this works. And I say, we're in Ephesians chapter 6. What does this tell us? That there were five chapters before it. That there was one through five and something happened. And what Paul does here is all of the same things. He's summing it up. When he says, finally, it's not as if he's sitting there. Paul is not like me. Paul is not all of a sudden like random thought popping into his head where he's going through this letter and he's talking about this grand cosmic drama and he's talking about how we're living it out and how we're called to be these new people. And all of a sudden he says, oh, wait a minute, I got another idea. Let's talk about, let's talk about de- dealing with the principalities and powers and putting on the armor of God. It's all a part of what he's been saying up until this point. If we pay attention to the words that Paul uses, and I might encourage you to do this as an exercise, if you like to study your Bible, is to take this passage here, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, And pay attention to the words and then go back through the rest of the book of Ephesians and notice where those words occur. Notice where it talks about truth and righteousness and the gospel. All those words aren't words that all of a sudden Paul's talking about. He's talked about them numerous times before. He's talked about these ideas many, many times. And so when he's, what he's doing here is summing it up. And so he does it with this opening phrase, in Ephesians 6, chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. They go, okay. But now, what did I say? Ephesians 6 comes after 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. If we go back to chapter 1, we see something that's remarkably similar, similar where it says in 19 through 20, And His incomparably great power for those, us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So this comes right, if we go back to chapter 1, Paul has been talking about all that God has done, and now he's talking about this prayer. He's praying for the people, and he's praying what they might know, and he's saying, and you might know his incomparably great power. Notice how these two phrases are, finally be strong and in his mighty power, or the power for us who believe, the power is the same as the mighty strength. Notice some similar words there? In other words, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 and Ephesians 6, 10 are like these bookends. Paul starts off at the beginning saying, I'm praying that you would know this strength and his power. And now at the end of it, what's he saying? Be strong in that power. In other words, this isn't something new. It's not a new idea. It's not something that all of a sudden he's thinking of. And what he's telling us what is the only power that matters is the power of God that we have through relationship with Jesus. 
And so he's setting this up. And so going back to all these things that are going on, and so he's reminded us, where does the strength come from? Is it something we have to muster up? Do we have to get ready to get out there and fight the battle? Remember, when I was growing up, and even now I get these catalogs with these little, you know, these armor of God, you can buy the little plastic breastplate and helmet and everything. Or maybe some of you remember flannel graphs. These little things that you would put, you know, stick, put all the little pieces on and it's, and being reminded by your Sunday school teacher, you got to put the armor on because you've got a battle to fight. And it almost feels like that's it. Like all of a sudden, like, oh, the world's scary out there. I better put on the armor because I've got a battle and you get ready to rush out there into this battle. You maybe feel like it's something deeper, like in the, war, in the movies, where there are always that classic scene of the, of the hero strapping on the armor. One of my favorites is Lord of the Rings, the trilogy uh, by Peter Jackson. And there's a couple of scenes, but one is great is Theoden, this, this king of the Rohirrim, these, this tribe of these horse-riding warriors. And there's a scene where he's strapping on the armor and the music's swelling behind him and he's putting it on and, and he's getting ready to go out and lead the Rohirrim, these horse riders, into the last great ride. And he goes forward and in the next scene he's out there and he's in front of this host of 6,000 warriors on horses and he's, you know, now for wrath, now for ruin and the red dawn. And you feel like sometimes that's what Paul is getting at. He's like, oh, we're strapping the armor because now is our time to go out there and die. It's not what he's getting at. <laughs> and not only that, it's not about our strength where sometimes it's like, oh, I've got I've to give my strength. Finally, be strong where? In the, in the Lord. Be strong in his mighty power. And then what it says, and how do we do, what does it look like to be strong in the Lord? It looks like putting on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And so one of the things we notice is that it's not about our weapons out, but it's about what? Standing. And again here, if you are one of those people who likes to take notes or underline in your Bible, look for the word stand in this passage. Maybe you heard it when Teresa read earlier. It says, down in verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so you may be able to stand your ground. Stand firm then and with your feet and then finally... In addition, then finally, and stand. And so there's this sense of this is about standing, about planting ourselves. And what is it? It's against, so that you may take your stand against what? Against all the horrible people out there? Against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, what? Is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly realms. Again, these are words that Paul has used all through the letter of Ephesians. This idea of the powers about these spiritual forces, the unseen forces that are at work. That our battle is not against people, but against the, the powers. Against these systems, and we're going to come back and think about what those might look like. But that's where our battle is. It's against systems and powers and not about people. Because sometimes we can make... So often it's so tempting to turn our battles into battles against other people, to see people as the enemy. And what Paul is saying here is that's not what the battle is, that the battle we have to fight is truly against these principalities of power, against these forces of evil. 
And he says, we stand by what? By putting on the full armor of God. Right again, Ephesians 6 comes after Ephesians 4. Back in Ephesians 4, he talks about putting on the new self. In other words, putting on the armor, putting on the new self. And we're invited to kind of hear this language of putting on, of taking on this new thing. Then we look through this and we see all these pieces of armor. We see a breastplate and a helmet. And, and sometimes it's tempting to try and figure out what these are, maybe where Paul got the idea from them, to try and say, oh, well, the helmet is the thing of salvation because that protects our thoughts and our minds and our breastplate of righteousness protects our heart. Well, there's a couple issues with that. One is that ancient people had different ideas of where our thoughts and our ideas and emotions lived. They thought most of what happened went down here. They really weren't sure what happened up in our head. I mean, we tend to think of ourselves like all our thoughts, this is the center of our thoughts, and we talk about our emotions being in our heart, but then we say, well, but they're not really down there, they're up here. And, but for the ancients, everything was in the heart, and so there's this picture of it. But more importantly, we have to think about Paul. For example, Paul writes another letter. Ephesians isn't the only one he writes. He writes one to the Thessalonians, and he uses the same picture where he says, 1 Thessalonians 5.8, but since we belong to that day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate. Wait a minute. I thought the breastplate was righteousness. Now it's faith and love. And the hope, well, not the helmet of salvation, but now it's the hope of salvation. See, because Paul wasn't caught up in necessarily saying, this is what each piece of the armor represents, but to begin instead to see it as a big picture. To say, putting on the armor is what? Putting on the new self. In fact, Paul describes himself in another place as a Pharisee. Now, again, if you've grown up in church, when you think, hear the word Pharisee, what do you think of? They're the bad guys, right? They're the ones who are going against Jesus. But there's one other thing we can know about Jesus. We can argue about the Pharisees' role in all sorts of things. But one thing we know about the Pharisees is they were students of the Scripture. They spent hours and hours devoted and learning and memorizing and understanding the scripture, being able to quote. And it's fascinating when you look through, read through Paul's letter, there's so many quotes and allusions to what we know as the Old Testament. And Paul didn't have a Bible. I mean, I, I'm writing my sermon sometimes and I, I might look it up in my Bible or I might pull out my computer and do a search and say, wait a minute, I think there was a verse that talked something about this. And I pull it up. When they had the scripture, they had it on a giant scroll. And those scrolls were kept in the synagogue. Paul didn't always have a scroll with him. When he was sitting in a jail where he probably wrote the letter to the Ephesians, it's likely that he didn't have a written copy of the scripture. When he wrote Romans, when he wrote it, so where did all that stuff come from? Up here. It was buried in and he was immersed in the scripture. And so I think when Paul is talking about the armor of God, he's pulling on all those pictures from the thing. So book of Isaiah is one of the key ones. So in Isaiah chapter 11, this is a passage we often read at Christmas time, you know, the, the shoot and the, the stump of Jesse. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Here kind of that language. Again, now wait, I thought something else was the belt. That's the point. Or Isaiah 52 how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings. On the feet of those who bring good news. 
What's another word or what, how else could we say good news? Gospel, which is what Paul says here, right? He says, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Or Isaiah 59, and this is describing God. It says, he put, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. In other words, the armor that we're putting on isn't something that just God says, oh, here, you guys have this. In fact, it's putting on the same armor that God wears. And one of the things that the Old Testament often does is has this picture of God as a divine warrior. That God is fighting battles. He's vindicating His name. He's rescuing people. And now what the book of Ephesians is doing is saying God is continuing His war against evil, but He's continuing it through the church. That putting on the armor is identifying with God and His purposes. Because again, remembering where when God is talking about putting on the full, or when Paul is talking about putting on the full armor of God, he's talking to all of us as a group. In other words, it's one of those all y'alls. It's not simply something for us as individuals, but he's saying, you church, you as a collective people, put on the armor of God, identify with his purposes, or as he says earlier in the letter, follow God's example. Or some translations say, be imitators of God. That we imitate God, that we continue in these. And so we're asked what? To stand strong by putting on the armor. And putting on the armor, then I would suggest, is becoming like Jesus by being God's holy people. In other words, our battle is what he's been talking about all along, where he goes back. And if you read all those things in chapters, especially four, five, and six, where he talks about taking off the old self and putting on the new self, about putting off falsehood and speaking truthfully. Wait a minute, what has he just said part of the armor is? The truth, right? He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. And again, there's this idea of not letting them take their place. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but one only what is helpful for building others up. Get rid of bitterness, rage. In other words, putting on the armor is what he's been talking about all along. It's about living this life where we speak words of truth. Where we live relationships where we're submitting to one another. Where our thoughts are thoughts of righteousness and of goodness. So, but what then does it look like to fight this battle? Well, I would suggest this, that it's we fight by, how does he say? By standing. By standing where? in His power. And He talks about it partly through prayer, right? He talks about at the beginning, and then finally He says, oh, and pray in the Spirit all kinds of occasions. And sometimes feel like prayer is just kind of this like, oh, fight the battle and then pray. But prayer is part of it. Prayer is intimately connected to it. Because again, go back to this earlier part in Ephesians 1, where He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And He says, so that you may know His incomparably great power for us who believe. In other words, Paul has already been showing us what it looks like. He's been praying that we would know the power of God. He's been praying that we would know this strength that he's talking about here. He continues it in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious stretches, he may strengthen you with power. So Paul has been showing us all along what prayer is all about and how it belongs to part of this. Prayer isn't 
this act where we go up and we battle with the demons. I remember when it was probably early 1990s and I got a copy of a book called This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. And maybe some of you read it and it's this, it's this great story of this newspaper reporter, but it's filled with all these images of angels battling these demons and the angels are these big hulking guys all shining with swords and the demons are these slimy little people. And, and as the prayer goes on, as the prayers go up, the angels get more power and they slash down the demons and it's this great thing. That's not what Paul describes here. It's kind of a fun book. I'm not, it, 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 it helps us think about and realize what's going on. But when Paul talks about prayer, he's already told us what we pray for. We pray to know the strength. We pray to be strengthened by His power. We pray to be aligned with the God. The song we've been learning and we'll sing at the end says, The battle belongs. This is when I fight, I fight on my knees. I, because the battle belongs, Lord. In other words, the call isn't for us to go out and to win battles. What Paul is telling us is the battle's been won. These principalities and powers have been defeated. They're still fighting, but we're living out this battle. Our fight is living as a new people of God, of fighting against the powers and the schemes. And how do we fight then? We fight through prayer, but we also fight like Jesus did. And so we think in the book of Revelation, this final one where there's all this fantastic imagery, I'm going to read a little bit more of the context of Revelation chapter 12 here. And it says, Then I heard a voice and loud voice in heaven say, Now you have come, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accusers of our brothers and sisters who accuse them before our God day and night has been hurled down. So that's verse 10. In other words, Satan has been hurled down. And they triumphed over him. How? By their own power? No. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as... In other words, they triumphed through blood and through testimony. They triumphed through the power and the strength of Jesus. And they triumphed through their testimony. The words they spoke and the lives they lived. That's what it calls for when Paul is talking about this picture of living out is to live and to stand strong. So we stand strong and we stand in His power. And so we think about, okay, what, what might that look like? And what sort of things are we fighting against? Because at this point, it's kind of a big picture thing, right? It's just this idea of what it looks like. But what's he saying? He said, put it so that you might take your stand against the devil's schemes. One of the things that we know from reading our Bible, and from the words of Jesus, is that one of the primary schemes of the devil and the schemes of the principalities and powers is deceit or untruth. To cause us to misbelieve things. That was, we go back to the garden. We got Adam and Eve in the garden, and Satan comes and tempts Eve by saying, well, did, did God really say that? And so to stand strong in the power of the Lord, one is to stand firm in the truth which is what one of the things that we talked about. Stand firm with what? The belt of truth buckled around your waist. Because part of how we stand against the schemes is knowing what's true. To know that we are dearly loved children of God, to know that we are God's holy people, to know what God has called us to live like. And our struggle is against these authorities, against these powers of the dark world, against powers and schemes 
sort of schemes go on. What might the powers and principalities look like in our world? One is it's a rampant individualism. We live in a world where everybody's out for what? Number one, right? Where we're looking out for ourselves, where it's like, what am I going to, what can I get for me? And what has Paul already said earlier? Submit to one another. Now, that doesn't sound a whole lot like I'm, we got looking out for number one and submit to one another. Those don't fit together very well, do they? And so to battle against the principalities and powers to put on the armor of God says, I'm going to submit to one another. We have the principalities and powers which have introduced the idea of sexual liberation to us. Going back to the 1960s that, oh, it's free love, love whoever you want, do whatever you want with your body. And Paul has already said, no, he says we must put off this falsehood that there must not be what? Chapter 5, verse 3. Even a hint of sexual immorality. And when we talked about that, we said sexual immorality, as Paul defined it, was any sexual activity outside the bonds of one man, one woman in the context of marriage. But we live in a world in which the principalities and powers said, no, you just need to do what feels good. As long as two people are consenting, it doesn't really matter, does it? And that's the scheme to say, because what has happened as a consequence of that? Has the sexual revolution in the 1960s made our society better? No. But that's the schemes that's going on. There's the principalities and powers that call us to be consumers. We talk about this week being the week of Thanksgiving, but what also happens this week? Well, now it's been this entire month, hasn't it? Yes. Of buy more stuff. I mean, this isn't new. I mean, sometimes they think, oh, well, this is all new, all these ads. I remember growing up and getting the Sears wish book. And some of you who are my age, some of you younger are like, well, a book? You got a book? Yeah, we got these books in the mail. Or we'd pick them up at the store, we'd stop by the Sears store. And some of you are also saying, what's a Sears? But it was, this, it, was, it was like the precursor to Walmart, sort of, but without the groceries. But you could buy all kinds of things. But they would have this book. They called it the Wish Book. And you could just page it. There were a lot of pages of clothes and tools and stuff. But there was also a huge section somewhere in the middle where you could see the latest Star Wars toys from Kenner. Just pages and pages. Or G.I. Joe or or the Easy Bake Oven, or whatever it was that you wanted. That you'd, you'd look through that book, and you'd earmark it, and you'd circle it, and maybe you'd rip the pages out and stick it on your mom or dad's dresser or bed just as a subtle hint to let them, because you wanted that stuff. Because what the book was telling you, the wish book was, we know that you wish on something, and when your wishes come true, what happens? And you're satisfied, you're happy, you're content. And now we live with it even more so where the ads in my email and on social media and the things coming in the paper have just been this nonstop of all these things you can buy. And the idea behind consumerism, what is? That somehow these goods and services will make you happy. That somehow when you're missing them, you will be unfulfilled. That you're missing out on something because you don't have the latest... Fill in the block. 
that unless you wait until midnight and are get on there and you get that PS5 that's been out of stock for months and months and months and you're fighting for it because you just think, if I have that PS5, then life's going to be good. And so people will wait hours and hours and other people will scalp them up using bots and then they'll resell them to people because it sells for $500 but somebody else will be willing to pay $1,500 for it. Because they think that if my child has this, my child will be happy. And if my child is happy, and if I give them my PS, this PS5, they'll know that I love them. That's the schemes of the principalities and powers. The principalities and power teach us that we can self-actualize, that we can become better people, that we can have our digital worth. I saw an article the other day. And it was ranking influencers on social media. And it had the Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. And it showed like the top 10 people and all, you know, how many million followers they had and all this. And one of the goals for many people is to simply be that, to maybe have their 15 minutes, to have their video go viral. Or to have an accumulation of followers to be constantly checking that. Or, or to simply post that picture and to get a bunch of likes on it. To post that picture and, and to read all the comments and, and tell you things. And it becomes this hierarchy that happens and says that some people are more valuable than others. The idea that, well, this person has 50,000 followers. So they must be more important. They must be more valuable than me with 23 over here. And Paul has already said what? that we are dearly loved children. Dearly loved children, not based on how many followers we have or how many likes we get or how many cards we get in, at Christmas time or don't get, or how many invitations to parties we get. And because that's one of the schemes, that's the principalities and powers saying, this is the, these are the things that other people define your worth. And what Paul has been teaching in the book of Ephesians is to say, no, your worth is not defined by that. God defines your worth. And he has already said you are of inestimable worth because he gave his son to die for you. And so now to fight spiritual warfare, to battle is to simply pray and be reminded of this, to go back and read this and say, no, I am not defined by that. My worth does not come from that. My worth comes because of this. As one person says it, I'm not loved because I'm worthy. I'm worthy because I'm loved. That I'm not loved because I'm valuable. I am valuable because I am loved by God. And so fighting spiritual warfare of doing this. And so every time we live this out, church, every time we say we're not falling into the patterns of consumerism, we are not falling into this pattern of social worth. We are not falling into the sexual immorality taught by the world. We are not falling into individualism or patriarchalism or white supremacy or political fascism. Every time we refuse to fall into one of those, we are participating in the redemption of the world. We are fighting spiritual warfare. That's why I said it's not this grand battle where we're out there swinging our our spiritual swords at dragons and demons. Spiritual warfare looks like loving your neighbor. Spiritual warfare looks like making that choice to say, no, I'm going to be honest today. Spiritual warfare looks like I'm going to put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Waging spiritual warfare says, in your anger, don't sin. 
Spiritual warfare looks like not letting unwholesome talk coming out of your mouth. Spiritual warfare might look like doing an evaluation saying, is what I'm saying building others up and beneficial to them? Because every time we do that, we're standing in the Lord, we're being imitators of Christ, and we're living it out. And Paul's saying, it's a struggle. I mean, that's why he says, he says, for our struggle, or if you grew up with the old King James, what, for we wrestle not. And that's why it's saying that there's this struggle we have against these things, because it's true. There's all, remember, all these voices, all these things coming in. But what Paul is finally saying is like, what he's inviting us to do is to remember this. At the end of all this, because he started off telling us all that God's done, and then he's telling us all these ways that it looks like to live as children of the light. And then we might at the end be like, I don't know if I can do that. And what Paul's saying is, no, you can't. At least not on your own. But you can do it when you stand in the power of God. When you pray like Paul prayed and you pray, God, show me your truth. Show me your goodness. Show me righteousness. Show me your strength. And then God, as he prayed later, fill me with that strength and power. Help me as I roll back the darkness, as I live the resurrection, as I live as God's holy people. So that's our prayer for this week. You know, each one of us this week, both as individuals and as a body of Christ, have a battle to fight. But we remember this, the battle has been fought and the battle has been won. Now we participate in that by standing strong, by remembering that Christ has defeated the principalities and power, that we're not battling on our own, we're not struggling against these things on our own, but we struggle in them as we trust in God. And so my prayer for all of us is that God might strengthen you, strengthen all y'all, with His mighty power for acts of love and service, that you may be clothed with Jesus, and that in the end you may stand. Amen.